You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are excited to be back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series which is our weekly ongoing and pretty raw exploration of the world of rule-based investing. And of course, where we also take some of your questions. So since I'm stateside this week, I can uh, safely say good morning to you, Jerry. <laughs> and then good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are you? Good morning, Niels. Good morning, hey, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning. Good, 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 good. Now... This week, I noticed that there were um, still a few big moves, uh, in particular in energies. Uh, I noticed that there was a lot of green colors when we look at equities, which probably will please some in this group and maybe not so much others. We'll see. Um, but then, of course, uh, when I was having my my um, healthy breakfast, I have to say, this morning at the hotel and was reading the paper, I saw this... Uh, quote because of course this week uh, was marked by uh, Jack Bogle's passing and there was this picture of him and a quote uh, of his um, where he basically says the greatest enemies of the equity investor are expenses and emotions and to some degree I think that's quite uh, fitting for a lot of the things that we talk about. I know you Jerry on the, um, well, I guess for all of us, of course, we, we, we agree on emotions being a big um, troublemaker in the world of investing. And of course, when it comes to fees, um, you offer very competitive fee structures on, on the fixed fees, Jerry. We, on our side, of course, uh, never charged a management fee in 45 years. And so I think those two things that he um, was quoted for um, are very fitting for for we are also uh, trying to do. So with that said, why don't we jump into the usual uh, routine, finding out what uh, has been going on in in our world. Um, and uh, no surprise, Moritz. I thought I was going to come to <laughs> you, you me to for start? a change. <laughs> Just yeah. because you're so good at this, Moritz. Well, uh, yeah, good, but uh, but still down for the year. Um, I'm at like minus six-ish, something like that. But nothing much happened in the past week uh, for me. I mean, I, I did lose money. We'll hear from Jerry in a bit, I guess. Maybe the opposite, hopefully the opposite, but but I did lose money on the equities. Um, net, net, I'm still short uh, those markets. And uh, and they rallied in this past week, so that, that cost money. Um, made some money on the currencies, uh, short positions in the Swiss franc, Japanese yen, euro, the Canadian dollar, those have all been good. Uh, did make some money on the natural gas, uh, but the other energies didn't do so much. So bonds about flat, like I said, all in all flattish kind of week, uh, didn't get me out of my minus 6% hole for the year. No, I mean, very, very similar uh, picture on our side. Uh, I mean, the losers really were energies, uh, equities, um, things like that. And, and, and the only real winner was, uh, was currency and volatility. Um, mm. We also lost some money in coffee and copper. So uh, yeah, small losing week for us uh, as well. 
Um, and um, and I was looking at the trend barometer this morning just to check, you know, how that was doing. And I think we're down to something like 27 or 29%, which is really low. Uh, normally, I would say 45% of markets in that portfolio should be, um, you know, in some kind of trending state to be neutral. Um, so when we're down to the um, 20s, um, it certainly is an illustration that there's not a lot of uh, opportunities for for these kind of strategies at the moment, uh, completely objectively speaking, um, and and therefore it's um, yeah, it's been a a slightly difficult start um, to the year. And and um, and before we jump to to you, Jerry, the other thing I kind of noticed. I mean, I'm coming over to to Florida this week because we have these annual conferences that we all go to and I remember very clearly last year at the conferences um, everybody was smiling happy uh, Q4 2017 had been great January 2018 was just fantastic everybody was off to the races very strong performance and of course we know that that was pretty much uh, the high uh, for the year or it was the high for the year and so I was looking at a little bit of, you know, historically saying, well, you know, it's now been a year and certainly in our case, since we had our last new high and and a year when you're so close to it can feel like a really long time. Um, but then I started looking at some of the other things that um, investors, I'm sure, are very familiar with what they follow. And uh, of course, uh, I ended up looking at equity markets in particular, and maybe European markets uh, especially. And it's quite interesting because um, a year, as I mentioned, feels like a long time. But people investing in the Eurostoxx 50 index, the last all-time high was in year 2000. I mean, that's an 18-year drawdown. The same with the Italian market, the Dutch market, the French market. They're all peaked in year 2000. Then you've had sort of the next group of markets that uh, peaked in 2007 before the next crisis. Uh, countries like Ireland, uh, Austria, Belgium, and uh, Portugal. And so that's an 11-year drawdown. Uh, and then you've got a few markets, um, including my native uh, country of Denmark. Um, and then you have uh, the FTSE. Switzerland and Germany that, uh, and of course we know with the US, um, peaked uh, only a few months ago, four or five months ago. So I think sometimes it's useful to put these things in perspective because um, a lot of people get focused on this thing about, oh, but trend followers are in a drawdown and, and, and it's a long one and, and we get tired of it and and it's boring to to always be away from your new highs. But I think sometimes we forget that other asset classes that people are very familiar with have had much, much longer drawdowns and are still in some of them right now uh, compared to what we do. So just wanted to throw that in there, Jerry, um, before we hear about your week. And, uh, and I'm excited actually to find out how different what you do uh, in, in the equity space compared to what we do, but maybe more in particular compared to Moritz, because I think your strategies are much more similar, how that's, how that's panning out right now. Well, just uh, trading the single stocks and not uh, getting all swept up in the big down move was great for 2019, of course, not my December, which was very bad. So uh, 
just a few shorts, but mostly a few, a few, few longs as well. So being able to look inside the indexes and get a few stocks from each of the different sectors and categories, you know, it provides lots of diversification. The sure on bad days, all my stocks are down or on the good ones, they're mostly all up, but the chart patterns look just as different as a the currencies, commodities, or interest rates would what we'd expect. So it's really kind of a difficult uh, puzzle to figure out, okay, I get a lot of diversification from these individual names uh, 90% of the time, but the other 10% is really unfortunate and, and dominates performance sometimes. So how do I handle all of that? Um, so we got lucky this time in maintaining the longs and very few shorts. Uh, so that's <clears throat> good for us. Um, and then energy, we didn't we didn't do go short many energies either because of the high volatility in the markets. We just tend to take small or no position in, until the markets kind of settle down. Uh, sort of a little twist on the trend trend following that we do. So, but yeah. I agree with the other markets. The uh, it looks like that with the uh, rally in in the stocks, we are seeing some rallies in commodities, metals, grains energy all losers because uh, we're short those few longs like the cattle uh, palladium still got a few longs trying to find more it's hard it's hard yeah yeah the markets have certainly been gyrating uh, recently there was another article i saw somewhere where someone had quoted um for the last three months uh fed chair powell's statements about uh, rates and they really are uh, alternately hawkish and alternately dovish. So no doubt that the markets um, maybe is feeling a little bit confused when, when, you, uh, when you see what's coming out from officials like that. Um, it was a big, what happened? Yeah. It was a big week, uh, you know, of course, for the uh, passing of the founder of yeah. the index fund. And I think that um, it's very interesting to just step back and, you know, we're, we, uh, don't trade like that. We don't probably agree with that um, as it relates to long only or stock only or something that's other than trend following. And I think that it's really interesting to hear your list of other stocks around the world that are in drawdowns for many years. And there was people uh, getting up tight this week about criticism of the index and bringing up Japan all the time. I was caught up in a Twitter battle of why do you keep bringing up Japan? <laughs> Thank you for bringing up a lot more. Um, and I thought it would be, uh, but still, it's still a situation where regardless, if you, now you just have to look at the United States, maybe the S&P only, I mean, how much more narrow is it going to get? And then they're still subject to a an 8% return on average and a 50% drawdown, which doesn't sound very good to us. Uh, and maybe you know more worse market markets to come for that type that style i don't wish anything bad on them but it uh, in hindsight when you're in that 50 percent drawdown i think you may they may have a little more clarity as to why it looks silly to lots of other people no absolutely and 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 in sort of in in um just following on from what you said about uh, Jack Bogle's passing, and and clearly he has had a an enormous effect on the financial world with the way he came up with the whole concept of indexing so many years ago, and 
And it kind of reminded me of something I was listening to or watching uh, on the way over yesterday on the plane. And um, because we often hear this thing about, you know, but trend following has had a difficult time. So, you know, will trend following ever work again? I mean, and it was partly a conversation uh, with Harold DeBoer from TransTrend, who um, uh, has also been on the podcast. So there's an earlier episode with him if you want to listen to it out there. But, but, but he talked about certain, certain fundamental shifts that happens where we kind of never going to go back to the old ways of doing things. And these are things that are maybe easier to understand and visualize why trends happen. And to me, you know, the whole point about indexing, for example, you know, how much that has really changed the financial world um, and the promotion of lower fees and so on and so forth. I mean, no one in their right mind is going to go back to the old ways of doing doing it, paying higher fees, for example. I mean, that's a fundamental shift. Um, and there are, of course, many other examples of these things uh, in, in other industries. So I think this is a, a useful way of thinking about why trend following uh, fundamentally uh, works. And I also like a comment, and I'm not sure whether it's in the first part of my conversation with Andrew Lowe um, that I published on Wednesday or whether it's the second part that comes out on Wednesday. But he also tries to uh, talk about these models, these approaches a little bit like in a sort of Darwinian way, I mean, survival of the fittest, that you know they do adapt over time to ensure their own survival, uh, so to speak. And I thought, again, that's that was not something I've actually really heard before. And I, I like the way he explained things. I'm not doing it justice right now because I can't remember it word for word. But I, um, but I think there's some, some interesting uh, ways where we as an industry may have to um, maybe change the way we try and explain uh, why what we love and what we do uh, will continue to 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 work. Um, and in fact, actually, one of our listeners, Michael, uh, sent me an email uh, the other day, um, talking in somewhat similar terms from from just what he had read and listened to our conversations. And it kind of reminded him a little bit about this. And I think that is, uh, it's a great way of, of looking at things. Don't know if you've ever thought about this. Yeah, what I have thought of is I think that What's happening here is the adoption of rule rules based. So I I think that well that's where we've been for our whole career rules based. Yeah. I think yeah. this what's happening with these indexes is they're a simple index with published rules and markets long only uh, can be usually beats discretionary trading, and I think that that's pretty sad and not not anything that we would be surprised by. So I think like you were saying I think. Uh, Lower fees are here to stay, and I think the, in the history of business, what happens is uh, in capitalism, uh, usually we get better stuff, more stuff for a cheaper price. And I think the next wave will be further adoption of more rules-based uh, and recognition that we're not really talking indexing here. We're talking systems and rules versus discretion and lack of rules. And I think that's where, you know, CTAs and trend following can be the next big wave beyond the first wave of stock indexing that uh, adding currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, longs, and shorts, and, and maybe uh, with a, the trend following systematic overlay, 
will give people better stuff, better returns, better risk-adjusted returns at a fair price, maybe a cheaper price. So I look at this as we're next up, and this is not the triumph of indexing necessarily. That's missing the whole point. It's a, it's a triumph of rules-based, which you know, we're all for. That's, that's what we do. It could be even more like, you know, we have those robo-advisors uh, using rules, maybe some Markovitz portfolio optimization. Just like Jerry said, I mean, we could be the next leg up where some of those robos become more intelligent robos, if you will, and uh, do trend following, um, you know, long and short instead of long only. And, and I agree with that fundamental description. I mean, we live in a changing world all the time. Sometimes it's maybe hard to, to recognize that, but we have those underlying currents and those massive shifts. I mean, you know, three, four decades ago, the computer came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were, I think that was Harald de Boer's quote, they were, you know, using waterways to travel in Amsterdam and, and then the cars came up. Maybe now we're going from, you know, into electrical cars as opposed to gas-driven cars. Um, things like that happen. And we may have to change the way that we follow trends and adapt to changing markets. We're saying this all the time modify our trend following systems, maybe ever so slightly if need be, but the, the overall framework is just very healthy uh, to apply a trend following style. It's the best thing out there. And I think in hindsight, we'll look back or our, my children will look back. This could take a while, the complete domination mm-hmm. and takeover by trend followers. Uh, but, uh, and say, you know, it really wasn't that big of a stretch to, to, think that people could accept commodities or currencies. It really wasn't that big. People, as we know, as we sort of, some of the tweets this week were just, everyone is just going to be overly influenced by recent performance. And so if the commodities had a run like the stocks, the S&P 500, it'd be an easier sell. So I I think it looks almost uh, impossible now to think that people are going to love on those markets that we trade every day like they do the stocks, but stocks down, our performance up, it could, it could happen pretty quickly. And the appropriate leverage, the appropriate fees, appropriate explanations, these, yeah, like you were saying, these all matter. But what's next? What's the big improvement over eight, average rate of return of eight and a max drawdown of 50? I mean, who's going to offer that? Us. It's going it, to, or we won't, but... I don't see anybody else with the with the type of possibility and the cap, cap, capacity that the CTAs have. I love that thought. Total domination of trend followers. So uh, you heard it first here. You know, January two thousand and nineteen. Total domination of trend followers. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and it's it's kind of interesting, right? Because a good friend of mine uh, went to a Goldman Sachs conference this week, and uh, he called me up and said, "You know, you won't believe what they're saying." And uh, in in summary, basically, there there this was I think a guy head of commodities or something like that. And he was basically saying people really shouldn't call Goldman Sachs anymore to get advice of what's going to happen with these price moves because it's all driven now by systematic trading, um, and and they're really the ones winning the battle. So the way we used to you know make our forecast and price things, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's not that accurate anymore. It doesn't really work, and and I think. Also, there's been many articles written uh, about, you know, the most successful, you know, investment funds or hedge funds, uh, whatever we call them nowadays. I mean, I think if not all, but, you know, eight out of 10 of them 
uh, are um, are systematic in terms of the um, the best performing funds. So I agree with with you, Jerry and, and Moritz. I do think that there's one. Yeah, I do think there's one thing that <clears throat> the CTAs, of course, I'm a broken record, need to improve upon, which is trading stocks <clears throat> and getting away from indices only. And then maybe trading more stocks, where I think that could be a bridge to final uh, acceptance of massive diversification, would be these products that uh, Abbey Capital and Milburn have come up with over the years, Milburn especially for a long time, Abbey recently, uh, mutual funds or products that are mostly stocks, 50% stocks, and so in the balance being currencies and commodities and bonds. and. So instead of asking people to allocate two to four percent to us, <clears throat> the number has gone down. In case you didn't hear this week, uh, but uh, then we create the one-stop shopping. Here's your equities, maybe a little bit of risk control with trend or relative strength on the fifty, sixty percent of the equities. Then and then we have we're going to also provide more diversification with the currencies and commodities and bonds, long and short. So I think. These guys are out there, and I think this is going to be a very compelling product. It's still a stock-centric country and world, but in introducing yeah. the individual names and creating a portfolio of that, you know, 25% or 10% of your portfolio that is stocks and uh, with individual stocks is something the, the, the CTAs have got to start to, to consider. In mass, uh, it's very rare, Chesapeake and Transtrend and maybe a few others, but uh, yeah, it's interesting to to hear you say that, uh, Jerry, because uh, you know, twenty two, three, four years ago, when I when I worked for you, I remember that we were toying with that idea. If you remember, I think we had the financials and middles, and we wanted to create like this portable overlay, portable alpha, I think we called it, um, which was, I think, a traditional portfolio overlaid with trend following. That's right. And I'm not sure it's it's uh, so 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 it's obviously going to be an evolution, right? Um, so so it, I, I agree with you that that ultimately maybe that's where we're going to end. But but and I know that that uh, our listener Michael has actually written something in the question today, and I don't know whether it's a real question or just a comment. But but it, it's kind of the same thing that maybe we as an industry, we need to change the way we serve the dish, right? Um, we need to serve it in the way that people find it, um, you know, appealing. And, uh, and, and we're not quite there yet, because even though we think our dish is the best one right now, um, it may not be exactly, uh, you know, what, what people would like to, to eat, so to speak, if we stay in that metaphor. But I agree with you that, I mean, that's hopefully where it's, where it's heading. Why don't we look at what happened in the news flow and uh, some of your uh, top tweets, uh, Jerry? Of course, I couldn't help myself um, not noticing the one, and maybe it was one of yours or someone else tweeted about this pension fund or whatever it was. So someone was considering making an allocation of two to four percent to trend following. Ditching something else, um, which I can't remember what it was either, but but it's just that two to four percent number that kind of hit a little bit of a nerve, I think, with all of us, um, in the sense that you know, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean anything to allocate two to four percent to this space at all? If you're trying to get true diversification, so 
that was one that I noticed maybe that wasn't the top tweet for the week. Oh, I think, I think that's a great one. You know, um, I think San Diego pension has experience with CTA. So that's a nice headline. And then as you read deep into it, one of the things that struck me was their desire and ability to extol the virtues of how great CTAs are. And at the very end, it's two to 4%. So I think, uh, this is just, um, you know, if, if crisis alpha and allocating the CTAs can't get any sillier and meaningless, uh, I don't know who's going to top this. But uh, so anyways, the quote is, CTA allocations improve the fund's diversification, particularly in downtrending stock markets and without material compromise on expected returns. As a result, they're studying the impact, studying it, uh, can't probably pull the trigger quite yet, of a 2 to 4% CTA allocation. Um, you know, and what about that statement, you know, without material compromise on expected returns, who else can give you any allocation to some other, uh, asset classes, you know, is it, can it be expected to have a similar return to stocks? And so we're going to add value to equities, uh, not costing no opportunity costs on returns and add diversification. So as Meb Faber said, and as we and many studies have said, you know, meaningful allocation of up to 50% probably is warranted and more if you don't uh, use recent stock market returns as a, you know, as, an, as, a, as part of the formula. I think it, uh, it, it rubbed us a bit the wrong way. I think, uh, Niels, you said, I think they're aiming for a pie, which is 3.14 something. So the 2 to 4%, we all agree that is um, very immaterial uh, within a larger portfolio. But in fairness, maybe just to put that into, into context um, of a pension fund, if they are, you know, asset liability driven in their allocation, meaning that, you know, they have a certain, you know, certain amount of liabilities that they model going forward. And as a result of that, uh, they're essentially forced to, um, well, depending on regulations and things, but they're forced and inclined to uh, invest a lot into bonds, sovereign bonds, corporate bonds, just uh, safe assets. And and maybe they only have room for about, you know, five, 10, maybe 15% of more risky allocations. And if within that bucket, they're putting two to 4% into CTAs, um, then maybe that becomes within that bucket, uh, a meaningful allocation to them. I mean, yes, we all, we all know that it's not going to be that visible on overall portfolio level, but I just wanted to throw that out that they, um, they may have very different uh, guidelines and restrictions in, in terms of how they can invest. Of course. And I think that's a fair point, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's interesting the way you describe bonds, um, as being safe, right? Well, perceived safe. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because that's yeah. the way we're kind of conditioned now after 35 years of falling interest rates, we think it's safe. Yeah. It could be the riskiest investment out there. Exactly could be the riskiest investment for the next generation, right? If we mm-hmm. have another 35 years of rising interest rates or if we have defaults that we haven't seen for a long time because there's just too much debt in the world, um, uh, according to many people. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, and uh, But it's different, right? It's, it's certainly different from, from what Calisters is doing because in their portfolio where they are trying to specifically use that for risk uh, mitigation, I think they're 
uh, allocation to trend following is something between 35 and 40 percent. Um, so, um, or maybe they just, you know, missed a zero in that quote. It should have said 20 to 40 percent. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow getting uh, the large investment firms and pensions uh, to understand how valuable the trend following could be for the stocks which would be a great coup for the CTAs. And so somehow, since yes. we're not even trading stocks, really, you know, very much, that's, we got to adopt uh, single stocks first and then possibly get in the portfolio and say, if you're going to, if you really want all these stocks, okay, whatever, but real crisis alpha is going to let me use my, my systematic trend following with small losses, trailing stops, uh, and minimally, I won't be long, fully long when the stocks have bad periods or crash like uh, a lot of part of last year. So that's the next step too. Let's get in there with real crisis alpha on your stocks with for a good systematic approach. And still make money when equities go up. I mean, that's the other part of the uh, the beauty of of um, of these strategies. I mean, 2014, there were no crises. It was one of the best year for, for, for trend following. 2013, our, you know, we made 20% and it was all stocks. Yeah. Our stock only fund was up 60%. So these are great trending markets that we kind of ignore. And then the mainstream investors sort of ignore us with our better approaches. Yeah. Yeah. What else got some attention and love in the uh, Twitter world this week, Jerry? Well, I particularly liked the study about how stock, uh, stock pickers don't know how to sell. They're great at buying, but their selling is worse than random. And I read a little bit into the article maybe, but, well, here's the quote. Managers have greater propensities to sell positions with extreme returns. Both the worst and the best performing assets are sold at rates more than 50% higher than assets that just under or overperformed. And so my takeaway was, you know, they're taking large losses and they're not letting their profits run. So I doubt that when they say that they do sell after extremely good returns, they're probably still leaving money on the table, as I've done and we all do when we don't uh, allow for the market to go as far as it wants to go without us having a predetermined idea where enough is enough. Uh, we like to think, okay, it's been up 100%, maybe I'll get out, but then it goes up uh, 500%. So they're probably subject uh, to the same feelings we have if we were not using a systematic approach. So I thought it was very interesting that we all kind of realize how important uh, single trade profits can be with the perfect choice of the exit. Um, and But these guys are, are having worse exits uh, than random because they're probably not following a systematic approach. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those classical human biases that we have. Um, uh, I don't know if it's called confirmation bias or whatever it is, but I mean, in, in by selling a winner, um, they obviously are proven right, right? So it's something that makes them feel good. Um, and, um, and so this is very classical, you know, Kahneman type stuff where... You know, these are the biases that we we fight against, uh, and that we have found a way to, you know, help us overcome by being one hundred percent systematic and and disciplined about it. So yeah, I, I'm, it's funny sometimes that so you see these articles where you think, well, there's nothing new in that, but then it comes out as something. <laughs> it sounds new, but it's it's really not. Uh, 
Interesting, yeah. What else um, did you pick up in your troll through the media? Well, a lot of people liked um, <clears throat> this quote, um, strategy diversification guarantees we will be wrong. Every year we will allocate capital to the worst performing strategy. The potential edge is, being, is in being vaguely wrong, which is annoying, rather than precisely wrong, which can be catastrophic. Uh, so it sounded a little similar to a quote that uh, Moritz had recently. Yeah. Um, so this is where we are, just good enough. We don't want to be too much better than just good enough. We don't want our systems to be too cherry-picked and too overly optimized. And with the major competition out there, stocks, indexes, we don't have to be very good anyway. So <clears throat> I've tried my entire career to find different strategies, um, maybe what this quote is hinting at, uh, that added value, but you know, during bad periods or periods where my better systems were underperforming, but I haven't been that successful at uh, adding sort of crappy stuff to good stuff. Um, so I've pretty much concentrated on uh, adding markets and uh, you know, single stocks and more commodities and currencies and things like that. So that's uh, cost-free and nothing but benefit when you add diversified markets, but still trying to find something that can help me in periods where my better systems don't do well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's this thing about, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people out there say that, yeah, I mean, the theoretical, you know, uh, idea of diversification works, but in practice, maybe not so much. And, and I think I saw someone um, had written about, you know, diversification works eventually. And I think that word eventually is very important because clearly in a year like last year, doesn't doesn't really matter what kind of investor you 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 were and and what kind of portfolio you had. There are a lot of things that didn't work out last year, um, but it doesn't mean that diversification isn't the right thing to and the right way to go about it. Um, so, any views from your side, Moritz? I'll agree with that. <laughs> Not much to add. I mean, we know there is regression to the mean and. Uh, Especially if you're following a portfolio of systematic strategies, you'll find that, you know, some strategies will underperform the one year and uh, maybe outperform the next. So uh, keeping on allocating and investing and putting money behind all of those, that's, uh, that's the right thing to do. Certainly is. Also enjoyed the, your interview with Andrew Lowe and oh, thanks. Saul Waxman. Really great. Yeah. Uh, I tweeted one of Saul's, I think I got it mostly right. One of his quotes, uh, what people liked, um, investors misrepresent what they want. Despite the talk of diversification, they favor strategies that have been most profitable recently. Mm -hmm. They have a lack of interest in diversification when it hurts returns. So it doesn't matter who we're talking to, the smartest guys on the planet or the, the least sophisticated. Everybody has these human uh, wants and needs and we just have to stick with what we do. I get calls and emails a lot these days from traders and friends, experienced and inexperienced, and everybody's stressed. And uh, every day I walk in, I'm down 30 to 50 basis points. What do I do? <laughs> I just said, we're all doing the same thing. We're all having the same feeling. Uh, I remember back in 1984, when we first started trading in the turtle program, we, I mean, immediately we were down 20%. And Rich just comes in and says, it's just totally due to the trendlessness and 
don't worry about it. Keep doing the right thing. Keep doing your trading. Here's more money to manage. And then we ended up having a really great 1984. So you just got to hang, got to hang in there. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. We need more people like him. Yeah. I mean, luckily there's still a few investors who see it uh, like that and, and who knows, um, you know, how to both manage the emotions, but also make sure that they, they get in, uh, you know, during the drawdowns. I mean, I think that's something that most investors fairly easily when they study trend following and study a performance chart can see that clearly it makes sense to uh, consider adding or entering uh, these kind of strategies during uh, stressful periods or, or of drawdown. Um, but as you rightly say, Jerry, um, you know, and as I think so uh, was quoted for, a lot of people are tend, you know, tends to just focus on on the the most recent performance um and and that doesn't make uh, for a sound investment strategy uh in the long run that's that's for sure but i will say by the way to to for those of you who listen in today and who haven't listened to to andrew and and soul uh you know it's definitely worth doing it there are veterans in this business and uh and you know andrew Lowe in particular has uh you know given a lot of really uh, valuable um, discoveries to to um, to this industry over over the years which is why he received the pinnacle award uh, last summer so uh, definitely check check that out what else um, did we see in the news well I got a nice uh, response to just something I blurted out uh, in response to what people were tweeting about how um, a lot of systematic traders are agonizing over the recent whipsaws, uh, what may seem like minor whipsaws over a long backtest are experienced as a major event in real life. And uh, that is so true. You know, we, I mm-hmm. get the backtest, I get the performance, and I'm so psyched. And then I start living with the systems or the tweaks. And um, oh man, it's so much harder uh, living on a day to day basis with little. Up zigzags in the charts. Uh, so I wrote back, falling in love with a trade and a narrative causes anxieties. Our rules-based systems are subject to our emotions and fears. So it's, I don't know of anyone who doesn't, where it's not possible to maybe feel bad when you lose money, even though you're committed to a systematic approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's it can be tough even if you've been um, doing it for yeah. a long time. Um, so I can't imagine how difficult it is for people just getting into this space. Um, but I think also again coming back to this thing about, I think people have forgotten how what a fifty percent drawdown in equities looked like. I think they got a little bit of a taster uh, in Q four, where suddenly markets or the U.S. markets went down by about 20% in, in, a, in a matter of weeks. So it's kind of a little reminder there. Um, but there's a big difference being down 20 and then seeing it rallying uh, after a bit of help from the plunge protection team and suddenly we're only down, I don't know, eight or nine for since the last high. But, um, you know, being down, I mean, and, and someone was, I think I heard a podcast uh, recently where they were going through Ray Dalio's um, latest book on debt crisis. And I think maybe one of you or maybe it's you, Morris, who've, who've read it, but but apparently in the book, um, Dalio goes through 
I think pretty much month by month, some of these crises and the amount of swings, the 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 fifty percent fifty percent drawdown in in equities, followed by a forty eight percent rally, and then down another fifty percent, and so on and so forth, and how some of these equity crises last, you know, end up lasting three years, which is more than both of the two most recent equity crises lasted, and and how what what that must have felt like. If you saw that kind of volatility, yeah. um, I agree. You know, I've I've read it and I found it really really interesting, um, and it puts it back into perspective. Like right now, it's it's tough. Um, had a bad start to the year. Uh, Two thousand eighteen was was negative year. So you kind of like wish for that to stop. Okay, okay. but like Jerry said, it's um, because you live in it every day, day in day out. Um, you know, your emotions, uh, they, they become a part of that. You may look at the back test and you may look at Ray Dalio's charts and you know, well, there's going to be a lot more volatility in those periods and maybe that's coming back. But regardless, it's in a chart that is, you know, 80 years in the past. You can look at that how many, you know, how many times you want. It just is no replacement for what's going on in real time. And, you know, you know on Twitter, I, people and in real life, you know, people are so invested they're so invested in this move. They're the buy and holders are invested that it keeps rallying. You can't predict. You can't time. Uh, then the people who are short uh, and you know, Trump haters or valuation type people, they're so invested that it keeps going down. And so we're sort of immune to that. You know, we're, maybe we're invested. I'd like to make money, and I hope your short positions work out in these stocks. So, and I hope the industry has a better performance this year. But none of our actual decisions and, and trades are going to be impacted by being emotionally invested. The worst case is we're just sort of not feeling good every day when we lose money. But thankfully, we, we're, we're not a part of um, letting these emotions uh, usually uh, impact proper trading. Yeah. No, no. And um, again, part of some of the questions that I received from from our listener, Michael, um, this weekend was also going back to something that he had asked a few weeks ago. And this is a little bit about why we generally sound pretty calm about things when when we talk about it. Um, and, um, and I think, and, and it is, of course, we're saying the same thing in different ways. But, but with this approach, and where you know, you have rules um, to follow, um, a lot of things becomes become unnecessary uh, in your life, even as an investor. Um, you know, you have managers who only analyze the markets once a week, and they find that that is enough for them to run their systems. So I've certainly had guests on the podcast that does that. Um, but it's also the fact that you can you can exclude the noise. I mean, as as you said, Jerry, I mean, there's so much noise. There's so much. So many people are invested in these moves at the moment. So the news flow is overwhelmed by opinions and usually they're negatively loaded. And and all of that, I think, chips away on, on us, even on a subconscious uh, level, if we have to listen to it all the time, even if it doesn't concern us as people directly. And I think that's what's so great about what we do. Um, in theory, we don't really have to look at uh, the news flow at all. Um, we just need to be able to download our prices on a daily basis and and run the rules and and make sure to follow them. But I think and that's such a relief. And I think and and maybe we kind of 
maybe I'm going to go into a little bit about the, 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 the questions now, Jaron. You can always come back with more tweets. That's perfectly fine. But I think that one of the things that Michael uh, also talked to, to me about, and I'd like to, to bring it out to you guys, and because I think in particular you, Jerry, are, are probably the one who um, uh, are the best example of it, um, uh, of the three of us. And that is this trying to live life through the lens of being a trend follower, not just when it comes to, to, to the markets. And um, so I don't know if maybe you can speak a little, a little bit to that point. Um, I know that, that uh, Mike was very, uh, or Michael was very interested in that. And I think it's interesting, but I also love to hear your views uh, more on that. Um, you know, how, how, how can we apply trend following to other things than the markets? Maybe that's the kind of the, the bigger question, or can we? Hmm. I think a lot of um, what the, a good way of applying it for, for me has been over the years, I was introduced to all these ideas by being in the turtle program, of course. But uh, is I remember Rich saying uh, one of his not only motivating but uh, profitable ways of doing research was to try to prove cliches wrong. And it was easy because the cliches were wrong. Uh, it, you can never go broke taking a profit or things like that. And I think that having that sort of contrariness right. in life in general, when everyone agrees with a certain cliche or certain way of looking at life um, <clears throat> in any subject, uh, you, just to be a little skeptical and uh, be kind of not so accepting of things that everyone else takes to, for granted as uh, it's just, and it's basically because they're lazy and it's hard on your brain to say, really, I can't count on that. I'd like to count on some things in life and not have everything be up in the air. Uh, so I think that's been probably the best, uh, one of the best gifts I was given is just have, is, is introduced to that sort of mindset. I mean, again, just before I want to hear your thoughts, Moritz, but, but just when you say that, Jerry, it's something that strikes me, and that is this, and I, I think you're absolutely right, that people want to have something to hold on to, right? We, we want, whether it's a cliche or whatever, we want something to hold on to. But funnily enough, when we try and get people to hold on to the basic thing that trends will continue, there will always be trends for whatever reason, unless all markets get completely controlled and, and which I don't think you can, even if you want it, um, then trends should always occur very, very basic, uh, you know, human behavior, uh, so to speak. So, so why is it that it's so hard for people to, to kind of um, hold on to that um, part, which to us seems quite a logical thing to, to ground our belief in um, that markets will continue to move um, sometimes more, sometimes less, but there will always be changes that are um, big enough uh, over time for us to, for anyone to capture uh, using a rules-based approach. Yeah, we certainly hope so. But back to the uh, living the life of a trend follower and uh, seeing life through that lens. Um, well, there, there are a couple of things where, where that works and where I believe it's very, very beneficial. There are others where uh, you know, I've heard people say everything I do in life is uh, is in a trend following way, family life and things. Well, I'm I'm not so sure about that, but I mean, what what certainly it has given me is that you know that fact based, very objective compass about about markets and decision making. I have just 
no interest and no more time uh, to get involved into all sorts of silly arguments about why a certain stock, Tesla, whatever, should be going to 400, 400 or 200. It just, um, nobody knows. Uh, people just make that stuff up. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I feel still for, sorry for those guys out there that, that operate in that spectrum because it's just a, a much, much easier way to go about things. Just follow the price, uh, take the right position size, and forget about all the rest. It, it, it frees up so much of your life, uh, gives you so much life quality. Uh, that, that's what I have found. Um, if you have that system and the way of going about things, it's, it's all uncertain out there. Um, and you're not making money by, you know, winning the, uh, the argument uh, contest and, and, you know, theoretically being right about things. This is, this is not why we're in that game for. At least I'm not in that game for that. You know, it's it's about having a robust methodology and making money in the capital markets without blowing up. Absolutely. Well said. Anything you want to add to that, uh, Jerry, or otherwise have a question from George? Oh, good. Let's go to George. Let's go to George. So George writes, um, and thanks for this, uh, George. And by the way, thanks, Michael, for some of your comments. And there may be more um, as I, I, I read it again. Um, but um, let's uh, jump over to George. And um, he says, when I started listening to the podcast, I would have guessed your competitive advantage was the secret source, system logic, generating signals. That said, you're all rather transparent about your systems and generally agree 90% of success comes from following the general rules versus system specific. So I'm left wondering, what do you believe is your competitive advantage? Great question, George. So, um, Moritz, do you want to kick off? What do you think your competitive advantage is? <laughs> competitive advantage uh, compared to whom? Renaissance capital? <laughs> well, none. <laughs> <laughs> Competitive advantage uh, in relation to a long-only passive equity fund, many, many advantages. Like, I mean, but what he said is right. I think the, the greatest uh, amount of success uh, and advantage stems from the fact that we have uh, all come to apply what we believe is a robust set of rules. Robust, roughly right, not too fine-tuned, just, you know, getting us getting us roughly into the situations and the trades that, you know, we want to have at a certain point in time and following them, following them over and over and over again with tenacity, not giving up about this. Um, even during, you know, periods like right now where maybe the, uh, the daily going about this system is, uh, is a bit tougher than usual or tougher than I'd like it to be. But um, that, is, that is an outflow of that competitive advantage. Lots of diversifications treating all the markets in the same way, treating all the trades in the same way and, you know, operating within that framework for years uh, and getting the experience that comes from that. I hope that is a, uh, a good enough summary of things. But other than that, you know, it's, there's no, it, it would be complete wrong to say that, you know, my system has a certain entry or exit methodology that is so superior to all the other entry and exit methodologies out there that this is where my competitive advantage is and therefore people should be giving me their money because I just have some sort of alpha generation generating capacity on that on that system that 
that is uh, that would be plain wrong. Um, but overall, the entire thing, uh, including the risk and the money management, uh, all the markets that I trade, the way I do it, that gives me an advantage to a large number of investors out there um, who don't do it that way. Good stuff. What about you, Jerry? <clears throat> so I like all of that, and I, I think that's a great list. I'll won't repeat those and i'll try to find a couple more maybe um within the cta field i think that um i think uh it's i, know, I don't do any counter trend trades just trend trades only so no ball targeting or take profits so i think that's kind of important fixed fixed portfolio very important single stock futures of course love the diversification there i think it's um you know, you just want to have a system that has an entry, has an exit, it has a stop loss, and you want to do those trades and not allow kind of money management or portfolio adjustments or ball targeting to have a big impact on those trades. I think that's a big thing as well, which I've said many times. So uh, another thing that's underrated because I've made mistakes in this area is uh, changes uh, infrequent system changes that's very important since you're already admitting that just good enough is good enough and we're not trying to find the best if anybody could systematic approach and rules then leave them alone you know once you figure out that you should be medium to long term uh, it's very important to do those trades in that system and not change them very much so when your time comes um, you know, you'll get the profits that you deserve because you paid for those profits with losses. Uh, the, the, that same system didn't do very well over a certain period, uh, which is predictable. So not making too many changes, evolving, but not evolving too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great stuff. So I'm also going to try and answer this more specifically in terms of, you know, even narrowing it down further just to the, the, the competitive advantage within trend following that, that we might have. Um, but it doesn't mean that I disagree with what Moritz and, and Jerry said, but I want to take it one step further. So the way that I look at trend following is that there are three things, and this is something that uh, pretty much all strategies have in common, um, that there are three choices that we, we have to make uh, on a daily basis, and that is where to enter, where to exit, and how much to risk. So in my experience at least, and if you look at various different models, I don't think that one model compared to the other, or I say model, but it could be approach like moving average crossover or breakout or whatever it might be, time series momentum. I think when you look at these approaches to the markets, I don't know that any of them are better than the other in terms of identifying trends. I think most of them identify trends more or less in the same, at the same time. So I don't think that there's a big competitive advantage, uh, whether you choose one or the other. But I also think that the weakness of trend following that we all know and, and agree on is that trend following can be tricky when there are few or no trends. We know that. That's where we lose a little bit over a long period of time. Or it can be tricky when there is a sudden reversal in many markets, many sectors at the same time. We lose a lot in a short space of time. 
So when it comes to competitive advantage, I think that those are the two areas where we should strive to improve. Um, so finding better exits um, and finding better ways of managing our exposure. It doesn't mean that I do not agree with, with everything we've said so far about, you know, just being good enough. I think that is absolutely true. But we're also fighting for, um, you know, delivering the best possible output to, to our clients. And for most of us who are in this business, it's also to ourselves because usually the managers are very large portions of the assets managed in the program. So, so of course, you know, research is about trying to find things that can make things a little bit better, incrementally better, not making too many changes and not making changes very often, as Jerry just said. But so I think that if you are looking to find a competitive advantage, and I think that's certainly one area that we've tried to find um, better uh, recipes, it is in the world of how we exit the market and it is in the world of how do we manage the overall risk of the portfolio. Is there a way for us to identify when there are um, fewer trends around in general and therefore not necessarily run at full speed? So, you know, at our shop, we, we used to run at full speed in terms of risk every single day, uh, regardless of whether it was a good environment or bad environment for trend following. Um, and of course, intuitively, we knew that that's not a good idea because when there are no trends and lot, just a lot of choppiness, you get a hell of a lot of unwanted volatility in your returns. Um, and it wasn't until uh, five, six years ago, we were able to find a better way of doing that. So, and I think that has helped. So I think that is a, an advantage that we didn't offer before. Uh, whether it's so much better than others, I don't know. But, but that I would just give that as an example of where where I think you can still find uh, ways to improve. So, so a little bit different answer to 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 uh, Moritz and 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 Jerry George, but but I I agree with what they've said as well. Uh, I just wanted to try and make it a little bit more specific uh, from from my point of view. I think that's pretty much what we had in terms of questions. I should say that um, we now have a time and a date uh, where Mip Faber will join us, uh, which is very exciting. So I would encourage uh, you, the listener, to, um, you know, send us some some questions. It'll be late February. Send us some questions that you would want us to bring up with uh, Mep. He obviously comes at this uh, area from a slightly different angle than we do. So it's going to be super cool to uh, discuss that with him. So if you have questions, um, we will collect them and we will save them and we will, you know, have a good discussion uh, trying to put your views and your questions forward uh, when the time comes in late uh, February. Um, let me just quickly run through before we maybe we wrap up at the end. Let me run through how, um, what performance looks like. Um, this is as of Thursday, uh, so the 17th of January. And I think Without a doubt, Friday uh, was a bad day for the industry or for trend followers um, uh, in general, at least. So, so these numbers are probably a little bit light uh, in terms of where they are at the end of Friday. But anyways, the BTOP50 index uh, was down 1.76% uh, for the month uh, and the SOCGEN CTA index down 2.18% for the month. SOCGEN trend index down 3.05% for the month and the SOCGEN short-term traders index down 1.48% for the month. 
And the bridge alternatives, the flat fee index uh, was down 3.35% for the month, which of course also is the year to date number since we are in January of 2019. Um, anything else you want to bring up before we, we, um, we wrap up for, for this week? Except that we, I should mention, since we are close to uh, to the conferences coming up, I know we're going to hook up with uh, with George in Miami. If there's anyone else who wants to um, hang out, um, let us know. And uh, we are there for a few days in Miami in the last week of of January. So we're always interested in meeting some of you, whether you are a competitor or a listener or something. Let us know. We'll be there. Anything else, Jerry Moritz? Um, no, welcome to the United States and look forward to seeing you guys. Yeah, same here. Great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, safe uh, travels to you, uh, Moritz. I'm not sure whether we're going to record before or after you fly over next week. Maybe we'll do it uh, before. So uh, we'll speak again before you come state size. And uh, on that note, we'll we'll wrap up, uh, wrap up this week's conversation. Um, which we hope you enjoyed. And, um, you know, we appreciate all the questions. So keep them coming, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com or tweet them to one of us and we'll get a way to uh, to get your some answers uh, on the next episode. And of course, if you feel you're getting some value out of these uh, episodes, uh, please do leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really does help us and other investors to discover the Systematic Investor Series. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so very much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.